Good evening, friends, and welcome to Sleepy Tom Tales, a podcast aimed at helping you to get a good night's sleep. Do you find your mind plagued with the stresses of modern life, especially when the lights are out and you're trying to get a restful night? Does your spinning mind keep you awake? Follow my voice down the path towards a good night's rest. Listen to me tell a story that will keep your mind from wandering to your daytime problems. The ones you can't solve right now, and will be easier to solve while rested. Listen to my voice and allow yourself to drift, following the twists and turns of the story, but slowly letting go, and drifting into sleep. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to take a couple of minutes and ask you for a little bit of support. If you've been listening to Sleepy Time Tales for a while and you're finding it helpful, helps you if it helps you to get a good night's sleep, I'd like to ask you to consider backing Sleepy Time Tales on Patreon. This is, of course, if you can afford it. If you can't, please don't even think, don't even stress about it. But if you can, if you have the means and you have the inclination, you can help me to keep Sleepy Time Tales going, to help me to reach all new audiences and to help other people to get a good night's sleep again. And not only are you doing a good thing in helping a community of insomniacs, you'll also be getting fun bonuses based on your contribution level. For as little as $2 a month, you get weekly access to early release on the main episodes, so that you get your fresh sleep aid on a Wednesday instead of a Sunday. And only $5 a month gets you weekly bonus minisodes, special edits, and a monthly megasode, which is all the previous month's releases in one big listen. The most recent member of the Patreon family is Roberta, who I'd like to thank for signing up. She's doing what she can to help me cover costs and keep Sleepy Time Tales available for free to all listeners. So thank you very much, Roberta. Thank you for your help, and I'm very grateful. But of course, monthly might seem like a big ask. And if that's the case for you, and I understand completely, Commitments, financial commitments, even little ones over time can be a bit of a strain. You can make once-off tips through the tip jar on the website. So if you go to sleepytimetales.net, you'll see the button right there on the front and you can just give a little once-off kickback, whatever you think is worthwhile. I've also got some basic merchandise in a tea public store, which you can reach to the show notes or via the website, sleepytimetales.net gone on a bit long tonight, so I'm just going to give a quick shout out to the music, which is Sweet Night and Friends by Kumiku. The music is available on their website at loyaltyfreakmusic.com, and we will be getting back to the show. Thank you for your patience. So what exactly is Sleepy Time Tales? What is it for? What is this strange thing, this idea, this podcast that you're supposed to fall asleep to? But in the 21st century, lack of sleep is a health crisis, and this is a podcast intended to help those that it can to get a restful night. Do you find yourself lying awake at night, mind spinning and emotions in turmoil with anxieties of 21st century life? Do you wake up in the middle of the night and find yourself not quite able to doze back off at 3am? I'm here to help. My name is Dave, and I'm your narrator here to help you into a restful night. Sleepy Time Tales is intended to be used as a distraction to what keeps you awake at night. 
or maybe sometimes background noise or even simply company. That's why I make the episodes quite long, so that I'm here for you, without any pressure of the end coming. As far as I know, there are a couple of different ways to engage with the show. The primary idea is that it gives you something to focus on, a story or an event that lets you keep your mind on a specific point, to stop it from spinning out into stress and anxieties, to help you to focus just enough not to resist the embrace of a night's sleep when it comes for you. Maybe you need something a bit different though, maybe you just need some kind of background. Some people like white noise, or the sound of the ocean, or wind in the trees, or rain, or maybe just some boring dude droning on. But however you're listening to the show, however you're engaging with it, the main thing is you don't try force the sleep. Just keep a light mental grip on the thread of the story and allow the sleep to come for you. Now obviously I'm hoping that you're out before I get to the end of the episode, but it's important you don't feel pressurized. If this is your first night with us, this probably actually won't work for you. I recommend giving it a solid three nights try. Take some time to get used to listening to me. Maybe my accent is strange to you. Maybe the idea of listening to someone who's going to be speaking to you while you're sleeping is just odd. Maybe one episode just isn't long enough. Or maybe your problem is a little bit different. Maybe your problem isn't so much the going to sleep. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night. What I recommend, because it's what I do, is to let the podcast run all night. Download a whole bunch of episodes, put them in a playlist, and as you go to sleep, let them go. That way, if you wake up, and you find you staring at the ceiling, half awake, half asleep, you can just carry on listening, and go back to streets, straight back to sleep again. You can even do similar if you wake up before the alarm. 60 minutes or as little as 30 minutes. Carry on listening and you can go straight back to sleep again. And it may sound strange. What point is there to an extra 30 minutes of sleep if, if the, your alarm's upcoming? But I've actually had people thank me for the suggestion because there is something about that that's satisfying on a whole new level allowing yourself deep relaxation at the end of the night. But it's very important though as you listen that you try to relax. If you're new to the show, this may seem strange to you, so just give it a chance. Because I'm here to work with you, to create a safe space, a cocoon in which you can curl up and allow nature to take its course. So if you're still with me, thank you for staying. If you're already asleep, we'll chat again soon. And of course you aren't hearing me, except maybe in a dream. The Description of a New World Called The Blazing World By the Duchess of Newcastle A merchant, travelling into a foreign country, fell extremely in love with a young lady. But being a stranger in that nation, and beneath her, both in birth and wealth, he could have but little hopes of obtaining his desire. However, his love growing more and more vehement upon him, even to the slighting of all difficulties, he resolved at last to steal her away, which he had the better opportunity to do, because her father's house was not far from the sea. 
and she often using together shells upon the shore, accompanied not with above two to three of her servants, and encouraged him the more to execute his design. Thus coming one time with a little light vessel, not unlike a packet boat, manned with some few seamen and well victualled, for fear of some accidents, which might perhaps retard their journey, to the force which she used to repair, he forced her away. But when he fancied himself the happiest man of the world, he proved to be the most unfortunate. For heaven, frowning at his theft, raised such a tempest as they knew not what to do, or whither to steer their course, so that the vessel, both by its own lightness and the violent motion of the wind, was carried as swift as an arrow out of a bow towards the North Pole, and in a short time reached the icy sea where the wind forced it amongst huge pieces of ice. But being little and light, it did by the assistance and favour of the gods to this virtuous lady, so turn and wind through these precipices, as if it had been guided by some experienced pilot and skilful mariner. But alas, those few men which were in it, not knowing whither they went, nor what was to be done in so strange an adventure, and not being provided for so cold a voyage, were all frozen to death. The young lady only, by the lights of her beauty and the heats of her youth, and the protection of the gods remaining alive. Neither was it a wonder that the men did freeze to death, for they were not only driven to the very end or point of the pole of the world, but even to another pole of another world, which joined close to it, so that the cold, having a double strength at the conjunction of these two poles, was insupportable. At last, the boat still passing on was forced into another world, for it is impossible to round this world's globe from pole to pole, so as we do from east to west, because the poles of the other world, joining to the poles of this, do not allow any further passage to surround the world that way. But if anyone arrives to either of these poles, he is either forced to return or to enter into another world. And lest you should scruple at it, and think, if it were thus, those that live at the poles would either see two suns at one time, or else they would never want the sun's light for six months together, as it is commonly believed. You must know that each of these worlds having its own sun to enlighten it, they move each one in their peculiar circles, which motion is so just and exact that neither can hinder or obstruct the other, for they do not exceed their tropics, and although they should meet, yet we in this world cannot so well perceive them. By reason of the brightness of our sun, which being nearer to us, obstructs the splendor of the sun of the other world, they being too far off to be discerned by our optic perception, except we use very good telescopes, by which skillful astronomers have often observed two or three suns at once. But to return to the wandering boat and the distressed lady, she, seeing all the men dead, found small comfort in life. Their bodies which were preserved all that while, 
by the extremity of cold, began now to thaw, whereupon she, having not strength enough to fling them overboard, was forced to remove out of her small cabin upon the deck, to avoid the smell, and finding the boat swim between two planes of ice, as a stream that runs betwixt two shores. At last perceived land, but covered all with snow, from which came, walking upon the ice, strange creatures in shape like bears, only they went upright as men. Those creatures coming near the boat catched hold of it with their paws that served them instead of hands. Some two or three of them entered first, and when they came out, the rest went in one after another. At last, having viewed and observed all that was in the boat, they spake to each other in a language which the lady did not understand, and having carried her out of the boat, sunk it altogether with the dead men. The lady, now finding herself in so strange a place and amongst such wonderful kind of creatures, was extremely strucken with fear, and could entertain no other thoughts, but that every moment her life was to be a sacrifice to their cruelty. But those bear-like creatures, how terrible soever they appeared to her sight, yet were they so far from exercising any cruelty upon her, that rather they showed her all civility and kindness imaginable. For she being not able to go upon the ice by reason of its slipperiness, they took her up in their rough arms and carried her into their city, where instead of houses they had caves underground. And as soon as they entered the city, both males and females, young and old, flocked together to see this lady, holding up their paws in admiration, at last having brought her into a certain large and spacious cave, which they intended for her reception. They left her to the custody of the females, who entertained her with all kindness and respect, and gave her such victuals as they used to eat. But seeing her constitution neither agreed with the temper of their climate, nor their diet, they were resolved to carry her into another island of a warmer temper in which were men like foxes, only walking in an upright shape. He received their neighbours, the bearmen, with great civility and courtship, very much admiring this beauteous lady. And having discoursed some while together, agreed at last to make her a present to the emperor of their world, to which end, after she had made some short stay in the same place, they brought her across that island to a large river, whose stream ran smooth and clear like crystal, in which were numerous boats, which like our fox traps, in one whereof she was carried, some of the bear and fox men waiting on her. And as soon as they had crossed the river, they came to an island where there were men which had heads, beaks and feathers like wild geese. Only they went in an upright shape, like the bear men and the fox men, their rumps they carried between their legs, their wings were of the same length with their bodies and their tails of an indifferent size, trailing after them like a lady's garment. And after the bear and foxmen had declared their intention and design to their neighbours, the geese or birdmen, some of them joined to the rest, and attended the lady through that island, 
till they came to another great and large river, where there was a preparation made of many boats, much like birds' nests, only of a bigger size. And having crossed that river, they arrived into another island, which was of a pleasant and mild temper, full of woods, and the inhabitants thereof were satyrs, who received both the bear and the fox and birdmen, with all respect and civility. And after some conferences, for they all understood each other's language, some chief of the satyrs joining them, accompanied the lady out of that island to another river, wherein were many handsome and commodious barges. And having crossed that river, they entered into a large and spacious kingdom. The men whereof were a grass-green complexion, who entertained them very kindly, and provided all conveniences for their further voyage. Hitherto they had only crossed rivers, but now they could not avoid the open seas any longer. Wherefore they made their ships and tacklings ready to sail over to the island, where the emperor of the blazing world, for so it was called, kept his residence. Very good navigators they were, and though they had no knowledge of the lodestone, or needle, or pendulous watches, yet, which was as serviceable to them, they had subtle observations and great practice, insomuch that they could only tell the depth of the sea in every place, but where there were shelves of sand, rocks, and other obstructions to be avoided by skillful and experienced seamen. Besides, they were excellent augurers, which skill they counted more necessary and beneficial than the use of compasses, cards, watches, and the like. But above the rest, they had an extraordinary art, much to be taken notice of by experimental philosophers, and that was a certain engine, which would draw in a great quantity of air and shoot forth wind with a great force. This engine in a calm they placed behind their ships, and in a storm before, for it served against the raging waves like cannons against a hostile army, or besieged town. It would batter and beat the waves in pieces with their highest steeples, and as soon as a breach was made they forced their passage through, in spite even of the most furious wind, using two of these engines at every ship, one before to beat off the waves and another behind to drive it on so that the artificial wind had the better of the natural, for it had a greater advantage of the waves than the natural of the ships. The natural being above the face of the water could not, without a downright motion, enter or press into the ships, whereas the artificial, with a sideward motion, did pierce into the bowels of the waves. Moreover, it is to be observed that in a great tempest they were join their ships in battle array, and when they feared wind and waves would be too strong for them, if they divided their ships, they joined as many together as the compass or advantage of the places of the liquid element would give them leave. For their ships were so ingeniously contrived that they could fasten them together as close as a honeycomb, without waste of place, and being thus united, no wind nor waves were able to separate them. The emperor's ships were all of gold, but the merchants and skippers of leather, 
the golden ships were not much heavier than ours of wood. By reason they were neatly made, and required not such thickness. Neither were they troubled with pitch, tar, pumps, guns, and the like, which make our wooden ships very heavy. For though they were not all of a piece, yet they were so well sodded, that there was no fear of leaks, chinks, or clefts. And as for guns, there was no use of them, because they had no other enemies but the winds. Both the leather ships were not altogether so sure, although the much lighter. Besides, they were pitched to keep out water. Having thus prepared and ordered their navy, they went on in despite of calm or storm. And though the lady at first fancied herself in a very sad condition, and her mind was much tormented with doubts and fears, not knowing whether the strange adventure would tend to her safety or destruction, yet she was withal of a generous spirit and ready wit, considering what dangers she had passed. And finding those sorts of men civil and diligent attendance to her, she took courage and endeavoured to learn their language, which after she had obtained so far, that partly by some words and signs, she was able to apprehend their meaning. She was so far from being afraid of them that she thought herself not only safe, but very happy in the company. By which we may see that novelty discomposes the mind, but acquaintance settles it in peace and tranquillity. At last, having passed by several rich islands and kingdoms, they went towards Paradise, which was the seat of the emperor, and coming in sight of it rejoiced very much. The lady at first could perceive nothing but high rocks which seemed to touch the skies. Although they appeared not of unequal height, yet they seemed to be all one piece without partition. But at last, drawing nearer, she perceived a cliff, which was a part of those rocks out of which she spied coming forth. A great number of boats, which afar off showed like a company of ants marching one after another. The boats appeared like the holes or partitions in a honeycomb, and when joined together stood as close. The men were of several complexions, but none like any of our world. And when both boats and ships met, they saluted and spake to each other very courteously. For there was but one language in all that world, nor no more by one emperor, to whom they all submitted with the greatest duty and obedience which made them live in a continued peace and happiness, not acquainted with foreign wars or home-bred insurrections. The lady now being arrived at this place was carried out of her ship into one of those boats, and conveyed through the same passage, for there was no other, into that part of the world where the emperor did reside, which part was very pleasant and a mild temper. Within itself it was divided by a great number of vast and large rivers, all ebbing and flowing into several islands of unequal distance from each other, which in most parts were as pleasant, healthful, rich and fruitful as nature could make them, and as I mentioned before, secure from all foreign invasions. By reason there was but one way to enter, and that like a labyrinth, so winding and turning among the rocks, that no other vessels but small boats could pass, 
carrying not above three passengers at a time. On each side all along the narrow and winding river there were several cities, some of marble, some of alabaster, some of agate, some of amber, some of coral, and some of other precious materials not known in our world. All which, after the lady had passed, she came to the imperial city named Paradise, which appeared in form like several islands. For rivers did run betwixt every street, which together with the bridges, whereof there was a great number, were all paved. The city itself was built of gold, and the architectures were noble, stately and magnificent. Not like our modern, but like those of the Roman times. For our modern buildings are like those houses which children use to make of cards. One story above another, fitter for birds than men, but theirs were more large and broad than high. The highest of them did not exceed two stories, besides those rooms that were underground, as cellars and other offices. The Emperor's palace stood upon an indifferent ascent from the Imperial City, at the top of which ascent was a broad arch, supported by several pillars which went around the palace, and contained four of our English miles and compass. Within the arch stood the Emperor's guard, which consisted of several sorts of men. At every half-mile was a gate to enter, and every gate was of a different fashion. The first, which allowed a passage from the Imperial City into the palace, had on either hand a cloister. The outward part whereof stood upon arches sustained by pillars, but the inner part was close. Being entered through the gate, the palace itself appeared in its middle like the aisle of a church, a mile and a half long and half a mile broad. The roof of it was all arched and rested upon pillars, so artificially placed that a stranger would lose himself therein without a guide. At the extreme sides, that is, between the inward and outward part of the cloister, were lodgings for attendants and in the midst of the palace the emperor's own rooms, whose lights were placed at the top of every one, because of the heat of the sun. The emperor's apartment for state was no more enclosed than the rest. Only an imperial throne was in every apartment, of which the several adornments could not be perceived until one entered, because the pillars were so just opposite to one another, that all the adornments could not be seen at one. The first part of the palace was, as the imperial city, all of gold. And when it came to the emperor's apartments, it was so rich with diamonds, pearls, rubies, and the like precious stones, that it surpasses my skill to enumerate them all. Amongst the rest, the imperial room of state appeared most magnificent. It was paved with green diamonds, for there are in that world diamonds of all colours so artificially as it seemed but of one piece. The pillars were set with diamonds so close and in such a manner that they appeared most glorious to the sight. Between every pillar was a bow or arch of a certain sort of diamonds, the like whereof our world does not afford. 
which being placed in every one of the arches in several rows, seemed just like so many rainbows of several different colours. The roof of the arches was of blue diamonds, and in the midst thereof was a carbuncle, which represented the sun, and the rising and setting sun at the east and west side of the room were made of rubies. Out of this room there was a passage into the emperor's bedchamber, the walls whereof were of jet, and the floor of black marble. The roof was of mother of pearl, where the moon and blazing stars were represented by white diamonds, and his bed was made of diamonds and carbuncles. No sooner was the lady brought before the emperor, but he conceived her to be some goddess, and offered to worship her, which she refused telling him, for by that time she had pretty well learned their language, that although she came out of another world, yet she was but a mortal. At which the emperor, rejoicing, made her his wife, and gave her an absolute power to rule and govern all that world as she pleased. But her subjects, who could hardly be persuaded to believe her mortal, tendered her all the veneration and worship due to her deity. Her accoutrement after she was made empress was as followeth. On her head she wore a cap of pearl and a half moon of diamonds just before it. On the top of her crown came spreading over a broad carbuncle cut in the form of the sun. Her coat was of pearl mixed with blue diamonds and fringed with red ones. Her buskins and sandals were of green diamonds. In her left hand she held a buckler to signify the defence of her dominions, which buckler was made of that sort of diamond, and of several different colours, and being made in cuts in the form of an arch, showed like a rainbow. In her right hand she carried a spear made of white diamond, cut like the tail of a blazing star, which signified that she was ready to assault those that proved her enemies. None were allowed to use or wear gold but those of the imperial race, which were the only nobles of the state. Nor durst anyone wear jewels but the emperor, the empress and the eldest son. Notwithstanding that they had an infinite quantity both of gold and precious stones in that world. For they had larger extents of gold than our Arabian sands. Their precious stones are rocks and their diamonds of several colours. They used no coin, but all their traffic was by the exchange of several commodities. Their priests and governors were princes of imperial blood, and made eunuchs for that purpose. And as for the ordinary sort of men that in that part of the world where the emperor resided, they were of several complexions, not white, black, tawny, olive, or ash-coloured. But some appeared of an azure, some of a deep purple, some of a grass-green some of a scarlet, some of an orange colour, etc. Which colours and complexions, whether they were made by a bare reflection of light, without the assistance of small particles, or by the help of well-ranged and ordered atoms, or by a continual agitation of little globules, or by some pressing and reacting motion, I am not able to determine. The rest of the inhabitants of that world were men of several different sorts, 
shapes, figures, dispositions, and humors, as I have already made mention. Heretofore, some were bearmen, some were men, some fish or mermen, otherwise called sirens, some birdmen, some flymen, some antmen, some geesemen, some spidermen, some licemen, some foxmen, some apemen, some jackdawmen, some magpiemen, some parrotmen, some satyrs, some giants, and many more, which I cannot all remember. And of these several sorts of men, each followed such a profession as was the most proper for the nature of their species, which the empress encouraged them in, especially those that had applied themselves to the study of several arts and sciences. For they were as ingenious and witty in the invention of profitable and useful arts as we are in our world, nay more. And to that end she erected schools and founded several societies. The bearmen were to be her experimental philosophers, the birdmen her astronomers, the fly, worm, and fishmen her natural philosophers, the apemen her chemists, the satyrs her Galenic physicians, the foxmen her politicians, the spider and lysemen her mathematicians, the jackdaw, magpie, and parrotmen her orators and logicians, the giants her architects, etc., But before all things, she having got a sovereign power from the emperor over all the world, desired to be informed both of the manner of their religion and government. And to that end, she called the priests and statesmen to give her an account of either. Of the statesmen, she inquired first why they had so few laws. To which they answered, that many laws made many divisions, which did commonly breed factions and at last break out into open wars. Next she asked why they preferred the monarchical form of government before any other. They answered that as it was natural for one body to have but one head, so it was also natural for a politic body to have but one governor, and that a commonwealth, which had many governors, was like a monster with many heads. Besides, said they, a monarchy is a divine form of government, and agrees most with our religion. For as there is but one God, whom we all unanimously worship and adore with one faith, so we are resolved to have but one emperor, to whom we all submit with one obedience. Then the empress, seeing that several sorts of her subjects had each their churches apart, asked the priests whether they were of several religions. They answered Her Majesty that there was no more but one religion in all that world, nor no diversity of opinions in that same religion, for though there were several sorts of men, yet had they all but one opinion concerning the worship and adoration of God, the Empress asked them, whether they were Jews, Turks, or Christians. We do not know, said they, what religions those are, but we do all unanimously acknowledge, worship, and adore the onely, omnipotent, and eternal God, with all reverence, submission, and duty. Again the Empress inquired whether they had several forms of worship. They answered, No. 
for our devotion and worship consists only in prayers, which we frame according to our several necessities, in petitions, humiliations, thanksgiving, etc. Truly, replied the Empress, I thought you had been either Jews or Turks, because I never perceived any women in your congregations. But what is the reason you bar them from your religious assemblies? It is not fit, said they, that men and women should be promiscuously together in time of religious worship, for their company hinders devotion, and makes many, instead of praying to God, direct their devotion to their mistresses. But, asked the Empress, have they no congregation of their own, to perform the duties of divine worship as well as men? No, answered they, but they stay at home and say their prayers by themselves in their closets. Then the Empress desired to know the reason why the priests and governors of their world were made eunuchs. They answered, to keep them from marriage, for women and children most commonly make disturbance both in church and state. But, said she, women and children have no employment in church or state. Tis true, answered they, but although they are not admitted to public employments, yet are they so prevalent with their husbands and parents that many times by their importunate persuasions they cause as much, nay more mischief, secretly, than if they had the management of public affairs. The Empress, having received an information of what concerned both church and state, passed some time in viewing the imperial palace, where she admired much the skill and ingenuity of the architects, and inquired of them, first, why they build their houses no higher than two stories from the ground. They answered Her Majesty that the lower of their buildings were, the less they were subject either to the heat of the sun, or wind, tempest, decay, etc. Then she desired to know the reason why they made them so thick. They answered that the thicker the walls were, the warmer they were in winter, the cooler in summer, for their thickness kept out both the cold and heat. Lastly, she asked why they arched their roofs and made so many pillars. They replied that arches and pillars did not only grace the building very much, and caused it to appear magnificent, but made it also firm and lasting. The Empress was very well satisfied with their answers, and after some time, when she thought that her new-founded societies of the virtuosos had made a good progress in the several employments she had put them upon, she caused a convocation, first of the birdmen, and commanded them to give her a true relation of the two celestial bodies, Phi, the sun and moon, which they did with all the obedience and faithfulness befitting their duty. The sun, as much as they could observe, they related to be a firm or solid stone, of a vast bigness, of colour yellowish, and of an extraordinary splendour. But the moon, they said, was of a whitish colour, and although she looked dim in the presence of the sun, yet had she her own light, and was a shining body of herself, as might be perceived by her vigorous appearance, in moonshiny nights. The difference only betwixt her own and the sun's light was that the sun did strike his beams in a direct line, but the moon never respected the centre of their world in a right line, 
but her centre was always eccentrical. The spots both in the sun and moon as far as they were able to perceive, they affirmed to be nothing else but flaws and stains in their stony bodies. Concerning the heat of the sun they were not of one opinion. Some would have the sun hot in itself, alleging an old tradition that it should at some time break asunder and burn the heavens and consume this world into hot embers, which they said could not be done if the sun were not fiery of itself. Others again said this opinion could not stand with reason. For fire being a destroyer of all things, the sunstone after this manner would burn up all the near adjoining bodies. Besides, said they, fire cannot subsist without fuel, and the sunstone, having nothing to feed on, would in a short time consume itself. Wherefore they thought it more probable that the sun was not actually hot, but only by the reflection of its light, so that its heat was an effect of its light, both being immaterial. But this opinion again was laughed at by others and rejected as ridiculous. We thought it impossible that one immaterial should produce another, and believed that both the light and heat of the sun proceeded from a swift circular motion of the ethereal globules, which by their striking upon the optic nerve caused light, and their motion produced heat. But neither would this opinion hold, for said some, then it would follow that the sight of the animals is the cause of light, and that, were there no eyes, there would be no light which was against all sense and reason. Thus they argued concerning the heat and light of the sun, but which is remarkable none did say, that the sun was a globus fluid body, and had a swift circular motion. But all agreed it was fixed and firm like a centre, and therefore they generally called it the sunstone. And I think I'm going to call it there tonight. This is a rather fascinating little read dating from 1666, considered by some to be the first science fiction story or a progenitor of it. If you'd like to pick up where we've left off and see where this story goes, you can, as always, pick it up on Project Gutenberg at the link in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Sleepy Time Tales, the podcast designed around a bedtime story to help you to get a restful night. New episodes will be released every Sunday night to give you something fresh to help you rest in a new week. But make sure to subscribe in whatever service you use so you get your new episodes whenever they come out. A reminder that the music for tonight is Sweet Night and Friends by Kumiku. Check out more of their work on their website, which you'll find linked in the show notes. Good night and sweet dreams. <laughs>